Chapter 1 of Travels in Alaska. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by L. Lambert Lawson. Travels in Alaska by John Muir. Part 1. The Trip of 1879. Chapter 1. Puget Sound and British Columbia. After eleven years of study and exploration in the Sierra Nevada of California and the mountain ranges of the Great Basin, studying in particular their glaciers, forests, and wildlife, above all their ancient glaciers, and the influence they exerted in sculpturing the rocks over which they passed with tremendous pressure, making new landscapes, scenery, and beauty which so mysteriously influence every human being, and to some extent all life. I was anxious to gain some knowledge of the regions to the northward, about Puget Sound and Alaska. With this grand object in view, I left San Francisco in May 1879 on the steamer Dakota, without any definite plan, as with the exception of a few of the Oregon peaks and their forests all the wild north was new to me. To the mountaineer, a sea voyage is a grand, inspiring, restful change. For forests and plains with their forests and fruits, we have new scenery, new life of every sort, water hills and dales in eternal visible motion for rock waves, types of permanence. It was curious to note how suddenly the eager countenances of the passengers were darkened as soon as the good ship passed through the Golden Gate and began to heave on the waves of the open ocean. The crowded deck was speedily deserted on account of seasickness. It seemed strange that nearly everyone afflicted should be more or less ashamed. Next morning, a strong wind was blowing, and the sea was gray and white, with long breaking waves across which the Dakota was racing half buried in spray. Very few of the passengers were on deck to enjoy the wild scenery. Every wave seemed to be making enthusiastic, eager haste to the shore, with long, irised tresses streaming from its tops, some of its outer fringes borne away in scud to refresh the wind, all the rolling, pitching, flying water exulting in the beauty of rainbow light. Goals and albatrosses, strong, glad life in the midst of the stormy beauty, skim the waves against the wind, seemingly without effort, oftentimes flying nearly a mile without a single wing-beat, gracefully swaying from side to side and tracing the curves of the briny water hills with the finest precision, now and then just grazing the highest. And yonder, glistening amid the irised spray, is still more striking revelation of warm life in the so-called howling waste. A half-dozen whales, their broad backs like glaciated bosses of granite heaving aloft in near view, spouting lustily, drawing a long breath, and plunging down home in colossal health and comfort. A merry school of porpoises, a square mile of them, suddenly appear, tossing themselves into the air in abounding strength and hilarity adding foam to the waves and making all the wilderness wilder. One cannot but feel sympathy with and be proud of these brave neighbors, 
fellow citizens in the commonwealth of the world, making a living like the rest of us. Our good ship also seemed like a thing of life, its great iron heart beating on through calm and storm, a truly noble spectacle. But think of the hearts of these whales, beating warm against the sea, day and night, through dark and light, on and on for centuries. How the red blood must rush and gurgle in and out, bucketfuls, barrelfuls, at a beat. The cloud colors of one of the four sunsets enjoyed on the voyage were remarkably pure and rich in tone. There was a well-defined range of cumuli a few degrees above the horizon, and a massive, dark gray rain cloud above it, from which depended long, bent fringes overlapping the lower cumuli and partially veiling them. And from time to time sunbeams poured through narrow openings and painted the exposed bosses and fringes in ripe yellow tones, which, with the reflections on the water, made magnificent pictures. The scenery of the ocean, however sublime in vast expanse, seems far less beautiful to us dry-shod animals than that of the land seen only in comparatively small patches. But when we contemplate the whole globe as one great dewdrop, striped and dotted with continents and islands, flying through space with other stars all singing and shining together as one, the whole universe appears as an infinite storm of beauty. The California coast hills and cliffs look bare and uninviting as seen from the ship, the magnificent forests keeping well back out of sight beyond the reach of the sea winds. Those of Oregon and Washington are in some places clad with conifers nearly down to the shore. Even the little detached islets, so marked a feature to the northward, are mostly tree-crowned. Up through the Straits of Juan de Fuca, the forests, sheltered from the ocean gales and favored with abundant rains, flourish in marvelous luxuriance on the glacier-sculptured mountains of the Olympic Range. We arrived in Esquimalt Harbor, three miles from Victoria, on the evening of the fourth day, and drove to the town through a magnificent forest of Douglas spruce, with an undergrowth in open spots of oak, madrone, hazel, dogwood, alder, spiraea, willow, and wild rose, and around many an upswelling montone rock, freshly glaciated and furred with yellow mosses and lichens. Victoria, the capital of British Columbia, was in 1879 a small, old-fashioned English town on the south end of Vancouver Island. It was said to contain about 6,000 inhabitants. The government buildings and some of the business blocks were noticeable, but the attention of the traveler was more worthily attracted to the neat cottage homes found here, embowered in the freshest and floweriest climbing roses and honeysuckles conceivable. Californians may well be proud of their home roses loading sunny verandas, climbing to the tops of the roofs, and falling over the gables in white and red cascades. But here, with so much bland fog and dew and gentle laving rain, a still finer development of some of the commonest garden plants is reached. English honeysuckle seems to have found here a most congenial home. Still more beautiful were the wild roses, blooming in wonderful luxuriance along the woodland paths, with coroyas two and three inches wide. 
This rose and three species of spiraea fairly filled the air with fragrance after showers, and how brightly then did the red dogwood berries shine amid the green leaves beneath trees two hundred and fifty feet high. Strange to say, all of this exuberant forest and flower vegetation was growing upon fresh moraine material scarcely at all moved or in any way modified by post-glacial agents. In the town gardens and orchards, peaches and apples fell upon glacier-polished rocks, and the streets were graded in moraine gravel, and I observed scratched and grooved rock bosses as unweathered and telling as those of the high Sierra of California, 8,000 feet or more above sea level. The Victoria Harbor is plainly glacial in origin, eroded from the solid, and the rock islets that rise here and there in it are unchanged to any appreciable extent by all the waves that have broken over them since first they came to light toward the close of the glacial period. The shores also of the harbor are strikingly grooved and scratched and in every way as glacial in all their characteristics as those of newborn glacial lakes. That the domain of the sea is being slowly extended over the land by incessant wave action is well known, but in this freshly glaciated region the shores have been so short a time exposed to wave action that they are scarcely at all wasted. The extension of the sea affected by its own action in post-glacial times is probably less than the millionth part of that affected by glacial action during the last glacier period. The direction of the flow of the ice sheet to which all the main features of this wonderful region are due was in general southward. From this quiet little English town I made many short excursions, up the coast to Nanaimo, to Bird Inlet, now the terminus of the Canadian Pacific Railroad, to Puget Sound, up Fraser River to New Westminster and Yale at the head of the navigation, charmed everywhere with the wild, newborn scenery. The most interesting of these and the most difficult to leave was the Puget Sound region, famous the world over for the wonderful forests of gigantic trees about its shores. It is an arm and many-fingered hand of the sea, reaching southward from the Straits of Juan de Fuca about a hundred miles into the heart of one of the noblest coniferous forests on the face of the globe. All its scenery is wonderful. Broad river-like reaches sweeping in beautiful curves around bays and capes and jutting promontories, opening here and there into smooth, blue, lake-like expanses, dotted with islands and feathered with tall, spiry evergreens, their beauty doubled on the bright mirror water. Sailing from Victoria, the Olympic Mountains are seen right ahead. Rising in bold relief against the sky, with jagged crests and peaks, from six to eight thousand feet high, small residual glaciers and ragged snowfields beneath them in wide amphitheaters opening down through the forest-filled valleys. These valleys mark the courses of the Olympic glaciers at the period of their greatest extension, when they poured their tribute into that portion of the great northern ice sheet that overswept Vancouver Island and filled the strait between it and the mainland. On the way up to Olympia, then a hopeful little town situated at the end of one of the longest fingers of the sound, one is often reminded of Lake Tahoe. The scenery of the wildest expanses is so lake-like in the clearness and stillness of the water and the luxuriance of the surrounding forests. Doubling cape after cape, passing uncounted islands, new combinations break on the view in endless variety. 
sufficient to satisfy the lover of wild beauty through a whole life. When the clouds come down, blotting out everything, one feels as if at sea. Again lifting a little, some islet may be seen standing alone with the tops of its trees dipping out of sight in gray, misty fringes. Then the ranks of spruce and cedar bounding the water's edge come to view, and when at length the whole sky is clear, the colossal cone of Mount Rainier may be seen in spotless white, looking down over the dark woods from a distance of fifty or sixty miles, but so high and massive and so sharply outlined it seems to be just back of a strip of woods only a few miles wide. Mount Rainier, or Tahoma, the Indian name, is the noblest of the volcanic cones extending from Lassen, Butte, and Mount Shasta along the Cascade Range to Mount Baker. One of the most telling views of it hereabouts is obtained near Tacoma. From a bluff back of the town it was revealed in all its glory, laden with glaciers and snow down to the forested foothills around its finely curved base. Up to this time, 1879, it had been ascended but once. From observations made on the summit with a single aneroid barometer, it was estimated to be about 14,500 feet high. Mount Baker, to the northward, is about 10,700 feet high, a noble mountain. So also are Mount Adams, Mount St. Helens, and Mount Hood. The latter, overlooking the town of Portland, is perhaps the best known. Rainier, about the same height as Shasta, surpasses them in massive icy grandeur, the most majestic solitary mountain I had ever yet beheld. How eagerly I gazed and longed to climb it and study its history only the mountaineer may know, but I was compelled to turn away and bide my time. The species forming the bulk of the woods here is the Douglas spruce, Pseudosuga douglasi, one of the greatest of the western giants. A specimen that I measured near Olympia was about 300 feet in height and 12 feet in diameter, 4 feet above the ground. It is a widely distributed tree, extending northward through British Columbia, southward through Oregon and California, and eastward to the Rocky Mountains. The timber is used for shipbuilding, spars, piles, and the framework of houses, bridges, etc. In the California lumber markets, it is known as Oregon pine. In Utah, where it is common on the Wasatch Mountains, it is called red pine. In California, on the western slope of the Sierra Nevada, it forms, in company with the yellow pine, sugar pine, and incense cedar, a pretty well-defined belt at a height of from three to 6,000 feet above the sea. But it is only in Oregon and Washington, especially in this Puget Sound region, that it reaches its very grandest development, tall, straight, and strong, growing down close to tidewater. All the towns of the Sound had a hopeful, thrifty aspect. Port Townsend, picturesquely located on a grassy bluff, was the port of clearance for vessels sailing to foreign parts. Seattle was famed for its coal mines, and claimed to be the coming town of the North Pacific coast. So also did its rival, Tacoma, which had been selected as the terminus of the much-talked-of Northern Pacific Railway. Several coal veins of astonishing thickness were discovered the winter before on the Carbon River, to the east of Tacoma, one of them said to be no less than 21 feet, another 20 feet, another 14, with many smaller ones, the aggregate thickness of the veins being upwards of a 100 feet. 
large deposits of magnetic iron ore and brown hematite, together with limestone, had been discovered in advantageous proximity to the coal, making a bright outlook for the sound region in general in connection with its railroad hopes, its unrivaled timber resources, and its far-reaching geographical relations. After spending a few weeks in the Puget Sound with a friend from San Francisco, we engaged passage on the little mail steamer California at Portland, Oregon, for Alaska. The sail down the broad lower reaches of the Columbia and across its foamy bar, around Cape Flattery and up the Juan de Fuca Strait, was delightful, and after calling again at Victoria and Port Townsend, we got fairly off for icy Alaska. End of chapter 1 Recording by L. Lambert Lawson Escondido, California, 2009